And as the kiddos are making their way out, I want to say welcome to you all. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Ignite. So glad that you guys could be with us this morning. Um, Thank you for being with us. And if you're a guest, uh, you are awesome. Thanks for being here. And if you are a regular, you are also awesome. And thank you for being here. Um, It is good to see you all uh, this morning. Um, as a, uh, before we jump into our, our message today, um, we, uh, we have something available as a resource uh, for you guys. Uh, Pastor Chase and his team have done a great job uh, putting together uh, what's called the series handout. And uh, this, this gives you an overview of our sermon series, uh, a little chance to go in deeper, um, maybe understand the book a little bit more of what we're going to be going through in the book of Daniel. And so um, this is available in print um, at, uh, at the uh, table, at the guest services table, but also uh, it is available online, ignitechurchfm.com slash Daniel. And uh, if you look that up, you'll be able to get this. Uh, it's a wonderful thing uh, for you guys and uh, an opportunity to learn more as we uh, study this uh, book together. We are going to be starting a series today that's actually going to take us pretty much to the end of summer. And what we're doing is a sermon series called Thriving in Exile. Thriving in Exile. And what we're going to be doing is a study in the book of Daniel. We're actually going to be doing the first six chapters of Daniel in this series. And so uh, this will take us uh, all the way through uh, summer. But it's an amazing study as we talk about what it means to thrive in exile. And, uh, and the definition of exile is this. An exile is the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. You are removed from your country and you're forbidden to go back in, either because of political alignment and refugee situations or punitive. You were barred from the country. You were kicked out and not allowed back in. Someone who is in the state of being away from their country, not allowed to be back into their country, is an exile. That's what we're talking about, and Daniel um, is an exile. Last fall, we, took a, we, we did a sermon series called Epic, where we went through the entire book of the Bible, our entire Bible, actually, all 66 books. We covered them all in 16 weeks, and we talked about this massive story that God is weaving in, that God is uniting all peoples to himself, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we saw how God was doing that, but he also saw that he had a, a people that was to bring that message, and in the Old Testament, it was the Israelites, and they were to go out and bring the message of the God of the universe to people and to live in a way that would exemplify being a part of his kingdom. And over and over throughout that history, they continued to wander away from God. They continued to be unfaithful to him. And then, and then uh, we saw that God would, bring, uh, God would bring judgment and discipline on them because of that. Even though they would wander far from him, God still loved them dearly. And then earlier this summer, Pastor Chase did a masterful job walking us through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet, um, and uh, and he one of his jobs was to go and talk to the people about their wayward ways, about that they're wandering far from God, and that in the book of Habakkuk, God would speak to Habakkuk and tell him that he was going to bring an army called the Chaldeans to come and conquer these people as a judgment. We saw that happening, and and what happens is, is that the Chaldeans, Chaldeans have a capital city, and the capital city of this Chaldean people is the city of Babylon, okay? And it is one of the most vile and evil cities in the history 
of the world. In fact, throughout the rest of scripture, when God wants to communicate how bad something is, often he will refer to something as a Babylon, okay? This was, this was crazy evil. And, and, and what happened was, is God would, God would do just as he said. He would send the Chaldeans, this bloodthirsty people, and they would come, and he, they would conquer the Israelites, and they would pull them away to the city of Babylon. That's what God said he was going to do. He was going to allow it to happen. And in the book of Daniel, we see that God actually does that. And yet, in the middle of all of these things, God is continually at work. And so the big idea that I want to talk to you today is we talk about defining the reality, the, the introduction to this series as we start to walk through this. The big thought I want you guys to take away is this. God doesn't need perfect conditions to do a great work. God doesn't need perfect conditions to do a great work. In fact, Throughout the history of the world, there's never perfect conditions, right? And so he, he walks through this, and God doesn't need perfect conditions to do a great work. And we're going to find over and over again that these exiles, as long as they're faithful to God, will not only survive, but they thrive. And so we're going to be in the book of Daniel today. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to kick it off right at the beginning. And what we're going to see today is the, is the, 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 the reality of what we're going to find for the rest of Daniel. So Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that the nation is defeated. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So a little history, uh, Israel was once a mighty nation, it was used mightily by God, they had, there was times of great uh, prominence as a, as a people, there were 12 tribes together as a part of the Israel nation, they were the United Tribes of Israel, if you can kind of picture that, um, and then they have a civil war, uh, they break up and uh, and uh, ten tribes to the north retain the name Israel. Two tribes to the south become another kingdom, which they name uh, Judah. And after one of the tribes, Jerusalem is their capital city. And uh, the northern kingdom falls first to the Assyrians because of their, their idol worship and their wickedness. Uh, Judah's decline was slower, but still uh, it was happening. And finally, God had had enough. You can learn about all these kingdoms uh, in reading First and Second Kings. It's a fascinating read uh, to learn about kind of the history of what happened um, with that. But Judah uh, would decline second, but they still would decline into idol worship, uh, worshiping idols. And uh, God would refer to this as adultery. Okay? When we worship idols, God refers to that as spiritual adultery. That, that the idea is that God created a people to be a, in relationship with him, that, that we would continue to commune with God, and yet over and over and over again, we chase after other things, and we want relationship with those things instead of our relationship with God. And God says, that, that is like adultery. And I don't know if, if any of you here have ever experienced that pain and betrayal of adultery. But that's what, that's what they're talking about here. That's how God feels about it. And God finally has enough. And he says, you know what, we're going to take care of this. And he, it says this in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord removed his protection from Jerusalem and allowed the Chaldeans 
to come in. And imagine, if you will, you're a young man or woman in your city, and things aren't going well. There's, there's exploitation of men and women and children. There's murder. There's violence. There's strife. There's malice. There's all these things going on. There's corruption and bribery. And time after time after time, God would send these messengers called prophets into the land and say, you got to turn from your wicked ways. you got to turn from your wicked ways. God's going to, he's not going to put up with this forever. You have to turn back to him. He's not going to just sit idly by while you do this to him and to his creation. you got to turn back. you got to turn back. And time after time after time, the nation would laugh at the prophets, sometimes kill them. Sometimes they would listen for a while. Sometimes a good king would rise for a while, but inevitably people would fall back into their sinfulness and wayward ways. And God finally says enough. And he kicks the unfaithful partner out of the house, so to speak. Along with the vessels of the house of God, And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar would come. He would would burn the city to the ground. He would rip apart families. He would kill some, capture others, and he would take them off into exile. He would politically remove them from their country, forbidding them to come back. This is where we start the book of Daniel. It doesn't start really chipper. But this is really what happened, and this is what we see. So not only is the nation defeated, but the people then become propagated. The people become propagated, verses 3 through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge understanding, learning, and content to stand in the king's, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the kings ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. The word propagate or to propagation is this idea of taking a group of people and, 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 and exposing them and bending them to this widely spread idea or worldview. It's to indoctrinate people. It's where we get the word propaganda. Okay, so to propagate a people is to take them and, and, and to, to spread your worldview and introduce them and teach them and train them and walk with them of your worldview, of, of your way of living, of your ideal. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to do something. Now, his chief eunuch would have been someone who was uh, loyal to the king, high up there as an official, would have been in charge of probably the king's possessions, maybe even some of the king's people, slaves, harem, all these kinds of things. Usually we see the eunuch in charge of that. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He says, take the best and the brightest. Take the young who are of nobility or of the royal family. Take, Take some of the best educated. Take the ones without blemish of good appearance 
Take the ones that have wisdom, that they have knowledge, that they have understanding, that they're competent. Take them and propagate them. Take them and train them. Now, this is an evil and sinister and brilliant strategy. Think about it for a sec. If you were going to impose your will on a people, if you were going to conquer them and bring them into exile, and you wanted things to go smoothly, what would you do? And what he does is, is he takes the next generation up, the young, the best, and the brightest, and he gives them great food, and he gives them great learning and understanding, and he says, this is what Nebuchadnezzar did. Instead of saying, we're going to have these young leaders who someday could start a rebellion, who someday could lead their people against me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the best and the brightest and I'm going to bend them to my will. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He says, I'm going to take the best and the brightest and I'm going to bend them to my will. I'm going to propagate them. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them the language and the literature of my people and of my gods. Just interesting. Now imagine, you know, like let's say your city gets taken, you're pulled off, and maybe you're fortunate, maybe you're one of the best and the brightest, and they pull you away from your family and they enroll you in the school of the satanic arts. They enroll you in the occult. They enroll you in dark, evil things. And yet they said, but here's what we're going to do is we're going to give you great food. We're going to give you wine that I drink. We're going to give you food that I eat. We're going to give you the best of the best. And we're going to bring you into um, the king's area. Not necessarily the palace just yet, but, but we're going to keep you in view of the king's palace. For three years, we're going to train you. And we're going to give you the best of the best. They gave them great food, great lodging, great prominence, and showered them with kindness. The idea is to make them so comfortable that they forget their ethics, they forget their heritage, and they forget their God. And they're going to use their leadership skills to continue to bring that message to other people as opposed to having them rise up from within. It's a really, really brilliant and sinister strategy. And what we see in this, which is really interesting, he entices them with knowledge and food and things that are desired. In fact, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a phenomenally beautiful place. And what I found interesting, I was even thinking about this last night, that the temptation for Daniel and the temptation for these people was the same temptation we found in the garden in, in Genesis 3 when they looked at the fruit and it was, it, was, it was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirous to make one wise. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he brings them in and he sees stuff that's good for food and beautiful to the eyes, nice to look at, and desirous to make one wise. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar would do. Um, I'm, I'm not super old, uh, but I'm old enough to remember um, what went on in the 80s. And, uh, and one of the things that went on in the 80s, and some of you remember this, some of you don't, but the Soviet Union existed, but so did East Germany. Right? East German, Berlin was split in two, and there was an East and West Germany. There was two different countries. And the Soviets and the East Germans were both communist countries. They wanted to get rid of Christianity, but they went about it in two different ways. 
The Soviets would go on to lay down heavy persecution. They'd throw people in jail. They would murder people. They would torture people. They would, they would press down hard. They would arrest leaders. They would uh, arrest pastors. They would do this, and they would throw them in jail, and they would tarnish their reputation and tell them that they would, ran off with some woman, and, and, and instead they would have them in jail for like seven years. There's, there's books upon this. And, and what happened in the Soviet Union is, is that even though they, they would push really, really hard, Christianity still lived. There was still a remnant that survived. East Germany did something different. What East Germany did is, is they would mimic Christian holidays and fund them with government funds and make them better and more lavish than the Christian party. So at Easter, there would be a government holiday that was fully funded and fully, you know, and they would have all these things. And, and at 16, there'd be like this special birthday. And in the church, they may hold a birthday, but the government on the same day would hold a, a, a better party for them. And what, what East Germany did is instead of pressing down, they just wooed people away from the community of faith and then the faith itself. And it was unbelievably effective as people continue to be wooed away from their community of faith and then their faith themselves. They took a lesson from Babylon is what they did. And so these people, not only do you get exiles, but then you get propagation. You get this idea that, that you are going to be subjugated, but you're going to be wooed away by all these different things. And when, when uh, propagation happens... There comes a pressure, a pressure to conform. This is where we get introduced to Daniel and his three friends. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. These are four of the, of the youths. These were four of the best and brightest. These were four without blemish who understood things. They were handsome young men. They were of royal family or nobility. They were brought into Babylon. And we're going to get to know these guys more as the weeks to come. You're going to learn about all four of these men in, in, in different ways. But one thing you have to know about Jewish culture and what's so important is that uh, Jewish people gave their kids names and all of the names had meaning, okay? So not just like, oh, that sounds like a cool name or I, I really like that or just a family name. A lot of times uh, when they would name children, it was to name them. Sometimes they had descriptors of what was happening at the time, like Jabez, he was birthed out of pain, and so they named him that. Um, but there's others that were like, this is a desired future, almost a prophetic thing. When you gave a child a name, it was a very serious thing. And, and sometimes when God would intervene in somebody's life so dramatically, he would give them a new name. Having a name in Jewish culture is a huge thing, a very, very important thing. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that. And his people knew that. And so they give him new names. And this is really interesting to me. I, I did a word study on it this week uh, of what each of these names means, of what their name was and what it is now. So Daniel, the name Daniel means God my judge. Like God is, God is 
ahead of me. God is my judge. And they changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel is the chief god of this pagan system. Think Zeus, okay? So, so Bel's god, or Bel's prince, meaning instead of God's my judge, now I belong to the family of Bel. Okay, does that make sense? They changed his name in order to try to win over his religious convictions. Hananiah, uh, Jehovah's another name for God. Hananiah means whom Jehovah has favored. And they changed his name to Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god. So instead of your God illuminating, instead of your God favoring you, now you're going to be shown on by the sun god. He's the one who favors you. In fact, he favored you by bringing you here into the king's palace. Michelle, uh, Michelle uh, who's, who is comparable to God? That's what his name means. Who's, who can compare to God? Meshach, his name is, who is comparable to Sheshach, the goddess of love and the earth? So who's comparable to God? Who's comparable to this goddess? And Azariah, whom Jehovah helps, to Abednego, servant of the shining fire. So all these guys had names that was like, God's my judge, God has favored me, no one is like God, God is the one who helps. And instead they get their names changed to, you're a prince of this pagan God, you're illuminated by this sun God, you are comparable, who can compare to the love goddess or the goddess of the earth, and, and you are now a servant of the shining fire, which had its own God in it. So these four men are given names that are after the most four powerful Chaldean gods in the pagan system. The chief among gods, the sun, the earth, and fire. Now these are flattering names, right? These are, these are flattering names. If, you, if you're going to be brought into a new thing, like you're not getting the lowest of the low totem pole. No, no, no. You are getting top names. You're like the prince of the chief god. You're the one that the sun god is shining upon you. These are very, very prominent names. All in, a, all in the effect to bend to their will. These men were lavished with wealth, drink, and, and, and status. But in exchange for that, Nebuchadnezzar wants loyalty. I do this for you, I do this for you, I do this for you, and in exchange for that, I get this. It's like the mafia, right? Like, I did this, I did this, I do all, you, I do all these favors for you, now in exchange, I want your loyalty. I want your loyalty. And that's what, that's what he wants. And this is the reality so think about it. You're a young man. Your home has just been burned to the ground. You're ripped away from your family. And now suddenly you're brought into this grand, the gardens of Babylon. You're brought in and you're amazed and you stand in awe. And suddenly you get good food and you get a good name. And you're given wine and you're, you're, you're seen as smart and without blemish. And all of these things he says, and all you got to do, all you got to do is bow to me. All you got to do is be, is be loyal to the king. And you're set for life. You're made. That is the situation that we find Daniel in and his three friends as they're in exile. The question is, what is God going to do with all of this? 
And the reality is, is this is a beautiful thing. God doesn't need perfect conditions to do a great work. God's going to do some amazing things that we're going to see. And we're going to see God at work. And we're going to see these men's faithfulness. And we're going to see how you can thrive while you're in exile. We're going to show you how this can happen. We're going to see that God is the God who still does miracles. He still does great things even when conditions don't look great. And I think this, this study is going to be very timely for us. I think it's timely because if we're followers of Jesus, we belong to a different kingdom. We live in America. We're here, right? There's, there's certain things that we have as, as earthly citizens here, but our, our citizenship and where we belong and our, our ultimate allegiance belongs to another kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is, is that we live in a world where there's another kingdom, a rival kingdom, that wants to set up shop and bend us to their will. That we live in a day and age that in some ways we live in exile. This is not our home. We long for the day when we be reunited with our king and see him face to face in his castle, and to be a part of his kingdom. But right now, we, we, kind, of have, uh, we kind of have this weird tension. We both serve as ambassadors <laughs> and, in some ways, feel like exiles. And there's a, there's a rival kingdom that is constantly bombarding us with propaganda, there's a kingdom of darkness that says, this is much better than God. This will satisfy you more than God. This will make you wiser than God. And the tools of his day are often lust and envy and fear. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. Like, we live in this tension in some ways, we're living in expressions of Babylon. And maybe you feel this more than others. Maybe you feel that pressure. Maybe you're here today and you're like, the world seems dark. And maybe you're here today and you go, I'm filled with fear about the future. Or I don't know what's going to happen to me. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, my, my circumstances are less than ideal to say the best. My circumstances are awful. Maybe that's where you're at today. You're like, my circumstances, how can anything good happen with where I'm at right now? And if that's you today and you're here today, my hope is, is that you keep coming back to hearing these messages as we walk through the book of Daniel because what we're gonna see is that God doesn't need perfect conditions to do a great work. He doesn't need the perfect conditions. It's not like he's waiting for something to go, ah, oh, I would have loved to, but ah, oh, the weather changed. I can't, 
What am I supposed to do now, right? He's not that way. God doesn't need perfect circumstances. In fact, God is going to use widely, hugely imperfect conditions in order to do great and miraculous work. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I wish my life was perfect. And the reality is, is none of our lives are perfect. It's only going to happen when we're with the king in his kingdom, living with him, seeing him face to face, when either we pass from this world or he comes back and gets us, whichever comes first. Until then, none of us are living in perfect conditions. And maybe you're scared about what's gonna happen to the world. And my prayer is that as we walk through this, you're gonna be encouraged that you are going to be challenged that you're going to be inspired by what God is going to do through these people. And we're going to see over and over again how God comes through and that our our weapon of choice is faithfulness to God. Because no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, God is still at work. Here's the thing, like I said in the beginning, God removes the unfaithful part of this relationship and kicks them out, so to speak. But God wasn't done. And so maybe you've been there. Maybe you've felt that betrayal. Maybe you've you've betrayed. God's not done with you. You're still drawing breath. And God can, can weave powerful things out of the bleakest of situations. We're going to see that all throughout this summer, that not only can we live in our modern-day expression of an exile, but that we can thrive. That it's not just about merely hanging on, although there is perseverance that is needed. But here on this earth, we can do a tremendous amount of good and a lot of great things can happen even while situations don't seem perfect. So regardless of who wins the election a year and a half from now, regardless of what laws get passed in our country, regardless of what's happening social media, and in culture. Which I'm going to tell you right now, I pray for those things. I want you to know I'm not without concern. I'm not burying my head in the sand. I'm not saying I don't, I'm not concerned or that I don't participate in the privileges that are afforded to us. But what I am saying is we have to understand that this is not our home, ultimately. And that faithfulness to God is of vital importance if we're going to thrive. And maybe you're here today and you felt like you are unfaithful to God. Know this, in all the ways that we sin, we're unfaithful to God. But even though we have been unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And that when Jesus went to the cross, 
he paid for our unfaithfulness to bring us back to himself. And that in this day and age where things might seem overwhelming at times, God is still at work in the lives of individuals, in cities, in college campuses, in nations. God is still at work. And he doesn't need conditions to be perfect. In fact, he does some of his best work when things look the bleakest. So have faith because God is with us. Let's pray.